Father, we just thank you for this, this great word from the scriptures this morning. And so, Father, I, I just pray now for the next little while as we explore this passage, as we explore Philippians chapter 2, that, that you would open our hearts and minds, that you would um, <clears throat> not just teach us, but transform us by your word this morning. I pray that, that you would um, push through any familiarity and contempt that flows from it, from this passage, Lord, and that you would just reveal the truth here afresh to us this morning in Jesus name. Amen. Uh, so last week we did begin a, a series on uh, Paul's letter to the church in, in Philippi and so we started with chapter 1 last week which is always a good place to start and we, we explored that passage and, and that passage is about Paul writing to this church in Philippi which many people believe is Paul's favourite church. It's um, this letter has lots less uh, argument um, and um, contention with troublesome issues in the church in Philippi with it than it does the letter to Galatians or the letter to the Corinthians, uh, even Thessalonians and Colossians. There's lots more trouble that Paul has with those churches, but, but this is Paul's favorite church. And so chapter 1 is about his celebration with them because they share the same priority and purpose in life. And so Philippians is a, is a letter, is a book that has many uh, quotable quotes in it. So lots of the, the messages and, and, and quotes that we, we often have in our mind, lots of them come from Philippians. And so the, the key quote we looked at last week was Paul's words, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so Philippians chapter 1 is, is about that truth that, that Jesus is the single most important thing in life. That advancing his gospel is the single most important priority in life. And that's, that's profound, but in the context of this letter, it's helpful to remember that Paul is in chains facing trial and we ultimately know that he is executed. We know that Paul, while he was in Philippi evangelizing initiating the church in Philippi faced significant opposition from those outside of the faith and the church continued to face that opposition. And so this, this truth is not said to a church in a comfortable situation, this truth is said to a church in a difficult situation facing opposition and Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He, he encourages the church in Philippi to, to embrace the same attitude. In Philippians 1.27, he said, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you, in my absence I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one person for the faith of the gospel. And so Paul, as he says that his life is Christ, to live is Christ, for Christ, to advance the message of Christ, he encourages the church in Philippi to embrace the same mindset. But he also says in that verse at the end of, of Philippians chapter 1, he talks about being one in spirit and contending as one person for the gospel. And so at the end of chapter 1, as we begin chapter 2, Paul shifts his, his focus from the church's priority and passion for Jesus towards that flowing into unity amongst the church. 
And so today what, we, what I want to explore is, is this idea of unity in the church and how we establish unity in the church and how we maintain unity in the church. Paul talks about contending as one person for the gospel. And so in chapter 2, he continues this theme and Paul begins that chapter by appealing to the church in Philippi to be of one in love, one in spirit and one in purpose. One in love, one in spirit and one in purpose. I spoke last week a, a little bit about the, the origins of the church in Philippi and how there was, there was wealthy merchants like Lydia, the, the purple cloth dealer, who was the first person in, in Philippi to believe in Jesus. Um, and there was a Roman um, prison guard who, through Paul and Silas's miraculous, uh, the earthquake that miraculously removed their chains and and he came to faith and his family came to faith in Jesus. And, and so there was these different worlds and there was poor people in the church and rich people in the church. And, and so in the midst of this diversity and opposition from the outside, Paul encourages the church to be one in love, one in spirit and one in purpose. He says in the first two verses of Philippians chapter 2, he says, if, and this word if could be translated since, it's not a oh, if there is anything kind of if, it's a, it's a rhetorical if, it's a if as in saying certainly you do have. And so he says since or if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if or since uh, you have any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and one in purpose. And so the outflow from being united with Jesus Christ is unity. The outflow from the comfort we have from God's love for us is unity in the church. The, the fellowship we have with God's spirit, so God's spirit working within each of us moves us towards unity together. The tenderness and compassion we have from God's love and amongst the, the church family leads us towards unity. This should be the outflow of God's working in our life through Father, Son and Holy Spirit, through His love and compassion, through His word of truth in our life. The, the outflow should be a united church. A church that is one in love, that is one in spirit, that is one in purpose, that is like-minded. So Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Now the Greek for, for this phrase, like-minded, could actually be translated, think the same. Think the same. And, and so uh, Paul is talking about having the same thoughts in our head as one another it's it's like when you're in a, a relationship a friendship or or um, a brother or sister or someone you're married to and you've known them so well you kind of know what's in their head you think the same with them this is the kind of unity Paul is talking about but he's not talking about uniformity he's talking about unity in the midst of diversity To steal the thunder from a few weeks' time, Paul, uh, in chapter 4, 
in his kind of final ending remarks to the, to the church in Philippi, he says in chapter 4, verse 2, I plead with you, you Odia, and I plead with you, Syntyche, to agree with each other in the Lord. And so this is what Paul means by having the same thoughts amongst each other, by thinking the same, by being like-minded. He, he doesn't envisage the church as being uniform or, or automatons who, who have no thoughts of their own, who, who agree about every single thing. He sees the church as a diverse group of individuals who, despite their differences, are committed together in the Lord. So agreeing together in the Lord doesn't mean that you and I will think the same about everything. It means that we think the same about the most important thing. It means that we think the same in terms of the highest passion and priority and purpose in life being the same thing. And that that thing is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so when our thoughts about anything other than Jesus become a higher priority, a higher passion or a higher purpose in our lives or in the life of the church, disunity is the result. Our beliefs about anything else, though not unimportant, are a far lower priority than Jesus and the gospel. Now, the cliche case of, of, of disunity in the church is the idea of, of carpet colour wars. Um, and I don't believe that this church here has had any history of, of having a war over the colour of the carpet, but, but uh, it's something we sometimes joke about in churches. Oh, there was that, that church split because they couldn't agree on the colour of the carpet. Um, or that church split because they couldn't agree... Uh, on what colour to paint the walls or they couldn't agree about what time to meet or, or they couldn't agree about this or that or that. But they didn't split because they didn't agree about the colour of the carpet. No church splits because they didn't agree about the colour of the carpet. By the time a church is splitting over carpet colour, Disunity is so embedded in the church already that it's all far gone. A church doesn't split over the colour of the carpet. The church splits because they do not think the same when it comes to what is the most important thing. A church splits because something else has become a higher priority or purpose than Jesus Christ and the gospel. That might be the colour of the carpet, which is a bit silly. I've never actually encountered a church that that's happened, but that's the joke. Or that might be something that we consider not so frivolous, not so uh, insignificant. That might be something that's actually important to us, like our perspective about women in ministry or our perspective on same-sex marriage and how we should respond to that, which I addressed last week. And if you weren't here, want to have a chat to me, um, feel free to do that afterwards. But, but these things aren't unimportant And churches certainly have split over those issues. There's been disunity in churches that haven't split, but it's not about those issues primarily. It's about those issues becoming a bigger issue than the single most important priority and purpose and passion of the church being centred directly on Jesus Christ and the advancement of His gospel. Unity in the church is established through being like-minded one in spirit, one in purpose, one in passion 
around the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And nothing else can be allowed to take a higher priority than our unity around Jesus. Unity in the church is established through keeping the main thing the main thing. And that is Jesus at the expense of all else. As uh, to steal a little bit of thunder from um, Steve's message next week, because um, I don't get to preach on, on chapter 3 and 4 because I'm on holiday, so I've got to steal a little bit from it because I love it so much. But, but Paul says, and this is, this is an advertisement for next week, Paul says in, in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And so our personal lives, that's got to be the, the truth that we embrace. But in the life of the church, we need to unite together and consider all things less important. Not unimportant. Even the colour of the carpet is important. Even our opinion about women in ministry and our opinion about uh, same-sex marriage, these things are important and there's a whole bunch of stuff that's important but but we have to have the attitude that all of that is a loss all of that is less important than the surpassing greatness of together knowing jesus christ as our lord unity in the church is established through keeping the main thing the main thing and so in the next few verses paul goes on to describe further the pathway to unity how we keep the main thing the main thing in the life of the church um, and, and so I'll just get um, Peter to throw out that first image um, of our not so we wouldn't call him a friend but of Kim um, and so this is a man you may be familiar with um, his name is King Jong-un uh, and so North Korea is a country that seeks to be united and they have a pathway to unity Their pathway to unity is one person gets to decide the life that everyone else lives. They're in power and they have unity through uniformity, unity through domination, unity through one person considering himself better and more important than everybody else Um, and so through military force dictating how everyone must live their lives. Uh, And I show this picture to show, to, to suggest that the pathway towards unity that Paul outlines in, in Philippians is the exact opposite of this. Um, so you can put Kim away now, Peter. Paul calls for a different way for the church. But certainly that style of uni- unity has been tried in the church. And so in Philippians 2, 3 to 4, Paul says this, still in the context of unity, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. That's the opposite of Kim. Rather than considering yourself better than others, you consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so what Paul is saying to the church in Philippi and to us is that selfless humility leads to unity. That looking to the interest of others, not just your own, leads to unity. That putting the well-being of others before our own is how unity is established in the church. 
It's not saying your own needs are unimportant or insignificant. It's not saying that the colour you'd like the carpet to be doesn't matter, but that you choose to put someone else's needs before your own. In Philippians 2.5, Paul boils this attitude down to a nutshell, this attitude of selfless humility, and he says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That each of us should have the same attitude that Jesus had and lived out. And, and this is the, the more common translation of that verse, that, that each of you should have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. And the danger of that translation is that it leads us towards thinking that this is just about our own personal piety. And Christy actually read from the, the most recent NIV translation that says, um, and translates it more literally, as, as each of you should have the same attitude amongst yourselves or in your relationships with one another, have this attitude that Christ Jesus had. This is not just about personal piety. In fact, it's not primarily about personal piety. It's about the relationships and the attitude we have towards one another in the life of the church. And so Paul introduces Jesus as the ultimate example of selfless humility, of serving others' needs rather than our own. And so in the next few verses, he goes on to describe Jesus' incarnation, his death and his glorification. And this is one of the most profound few chapters of Scripture. It says so much about who Jesus has always been, who he was through his incarnation, through his sacrifice on the cross and, and who he is and will be for all eternity. Um, and so it's worthy of study. And, and as I was studying this passage, um, one of the commentators that I read suggested that more has been written about these few verses throughout the history of the church than any other short passage of Scripture. But the danger of that is that we pluck it from its context. There's much to learn about Jesus from this, but, but Paul doesn't include it here primarily to teach us about Jesus, though it does that. He includes it here to teach us about the kind of attitude that we should have in the church to establish unity. And so there's two questions to ask, and the first question is what's often asked is, is what does this passage say about Jesus and his attitude to others? But what Paul wants us to ask is what then does it say about the attitude we are called to embrace? What then does it say about how we, through humility and selflessness, establish unity in the church? And so with those questions in mind, I, I just want to reread those few verses. In chapter 6, Paul says of Jesus, the, the one who modeled the attitude we're called to embrace, he says, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross." And so Paul describes Jesus as being unmistakably divine and pre-existent. 
But he says that Jesus being divine, being God and being pre-existent, did not take advantage of or exploit or cling to. That's, that's that word grasped, born out in its fullest sense. He didn't take advantage of his divine status or power. He didn't exploit it for his own, own sake. He didn't cling to it and refuse to let go of it. He emptied himself for others. Jesus didn't just have this attitude, he put it into action, he became human. He not only became human, he expressed his humility and his selflessness for the sake of others to the extent of dying on a cross. There was no more shameful or lowly place in the culture of Jesus' day than to be crucified. To every single person in the world at that time, to be crucified was the lowest possible place you could take in the social, political, power, hierarchy, whatever hierarchy you would put of any kind of status or power being nailed to a cross was the lowest place you could take. And so in these short verses, Paul is describing Jesus unsurpassed power and status that he gave up to take the unsurpassed lowest possible position he could take for the sake of others. There is no lower that Jesus could have gone. We live in a world that craves status and power. We are in some senses, uh, I believe just since the fall, wired to seek what's best for us, often at the expense of or at least with apathy towards others. We live in a world that demands our own rights and entitlements. But this is the kind of attitude that breeds disunity, where we demand our rights and entitlements. In the church, we're called to emulate the attitude of Jesus who had the highest possible status of power and power, yet instead of clinging to it and grasping it and taking advantage of it and exploiting it and using it to lord it over others, emptied and lowered himself for the sake of others. We're called to emulate the model of Jesus who is entitled to all praise, honour, glory yet embrace the shame of the cross and the mocking rebukes of others for our sake. We're called to model our attitude around Jesus who cared not for status, not for power, despite having the highest status and power he could possibly have. In Philippians 2, 9 and 11, in, in the final few verses of this, this section, it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus' attitude, his selfless, humble, obedient attitude was vindicated by God. That the very thing he didn't cling to, status and power and praise and glory, was the very result 
of his humility, of his selflessness. And so though we won't have the same uh, level of glorification of Jesus, we won't be declared Lord by every knee and every tongue. Paul includes this here to, to encourage us that we too, like Paul, don't need to cling to power. Sorry, we too, like Jesus, don't need to cling to power. We too, like Jesus, don't need to cling to status. We too, like Jesus, don't need to seek praise and glory from others. We too, like Jesus, can embrace a humble, selfless attitude because God will vindicate us. We will too be be entering into glory alongside Jesus. This world is not the place for us to seek power and status. And so therefore, whatever status or advantage that we have is to be used for the sake of others and not for our own sake. If we have the same attitude of Jesus, it means that whatever wealth we have, we use it for others, not just for ourselves. Whatever social status we have, we use that for the advantage of others, not just for ourselves. Whatever leadership position we have, be that in the church or in the community, if we're to embrace the attitude of Jesus, we use our leadership for others and not just for ourselves. Whatever position of power and privilege, we use it for others and not just ourselves. Whatever free time and spare time we have, we don't just use it for ourselves, we use it for others. Whatever we have... If we're to embrace the attitude of Jesus, we, through humility and selflessness and obedience, use it for others, looking not just to our own needs, not just to our own interests and desires, but to those of others. So let me remind you that this isn't just about personal piety, but this is about the unity in the church. Sometimes the church can become the place where we least express the attitude of Jesus. Particularly in, and I'm not speaking of our own church meetings, we have great church meetings, but particularly in church business meetings or, or, or things like that, sometimes in churches that's the place where, where we feel free to switch off the attitude of Jesus and pursue our own needs and desires. The opposite should be true. Paul is calling for us amongst the church to have the attitude of Jesus towards one another. Unity in the church is established through being like-minded about the main thing. And unity in the church is also established through humility and selfless service of one another. Unity is established through keeping the main thing the main thing and unity is established through humility and selfless service through considering others better than ourselves. But the question is, why is unity so important? That's one of the key things that Jesus prayed in, in John, um, in his, it's often called the high priestly prayer. He says, Father, I pray that 
that they would be one, speaking of the church, of the disciples and, and all would, who would believe through them, that's us. He says, I pray that they would be one as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is one, as you and I are one, Jesus prayed, that the church would be one. Paul here is, is spending significant time in his letter to Philippi, encouraging them to, to be united as one. And so the question is, why is Paul so eager about unity in the church? It, it, it would be easy for us in chapter 12 to think that Paul is going on to, to a new thought, to another thing, except for that first word there that says, therefore. Paul is not moving on yet to another topic. He says, therefore, in, chapter, in verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And again, we, we could consider this just being about our own personal piety, about our own personal relationship with Jesus, that, that we need to work at it with fear and trembling. And, and, and that is true. We need to work out our faith with God. But, but Paul is saying, therefore, he's still talking about this concept of unity and it's not an individualistic thing. It's one of the, the greatest abuses that we do as Western culture is, is we think that everything is just about me rather than about us. When Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's not just talking about, Nick, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's talking about the church together, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And, and so Paul is essentially saying, unity doesn't drop out of a tree. This, this unity that flows from being united in Christ through the compassion of the Spirit, through, through the love and encouragement we have together, this unity that flows from that place doesn't happen without work. We need to work at it with, with fear and in trembling. Paul's saying you've got to fight for unity, not fight with each other. But he also says, in verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. God's grace is enabling you to do this. Just as, as you are working at it hard together as the church towards unity, God's grace is working within you to, to cause you to desire that unity, to cause you to act towards that unity. It's not just being lazy and relying on grace and it's not just working your own strength, it's, it's working together with God's grace within us. But why is it so important? Paul goes on to say this, Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in this crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. Paul's desire for the church in Philippi, and I believe God's desire for us yes community baptist church is that we shine like stars as we hold out the word of truth that's just another way of paul saying the gospel the good news about jesus christ so the church is called to be beacons of hope 
not just as individuals, but the church itself together. And so unity is not just for unity's sake, it is for the sake of Jesus Christ and his gospel. We're called to shine like stars, but disunity in the church will tarnish the gospel message. So much to the point that that the one issue the Philippian church really seems to be having is that of disunity. Paul fears running the race in vain, that that all his gospel ministry, that his apostolic work in Philippi will be ran in vain, his effort will be in vain if they can't sort out this unity thing. Not only does disunity in the church tarnish the gospel, it can render it completely ineffective in the communities in which we live. But unity in the church makes the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ shine. Unity in the church makes the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ shine. When we are together, like-minded, one in spirit, one in love, one in purpose, the message about Jesus shines. That's why Paul is so eager to see unity established in the church. That's why Jesus prays that the church would be one. And for us, the the same is true. We need to be united together so that the gospel message, so that Jesus and his message would shine in our communities. But even more so in 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 a world where that is increasingly averse to the church and is increasingly anti-gospel, we can no longer live and survive with internal squabbles in the church. In the past, in places, the church may have gotten away with it and survived, but we are entering a season for the Western church where we simply cannot. We are entering a season... And I'm not just talking about our local church family here, which of course it applies to that. We are entering a season for the Western church. Um, I only say Western church because the church in the majority world has been aware of this for a long time. They're a bit ahead of us in many things. But we're entering a season for the Western church where we need to wake up and realize we cannot be divided any longer. Yes, Community Baptist Church, I, I feel that, that we're in a place of health and unity. I don't feel like we're divided against one another, but we are still entering a season for the church here locally where we cannot survive, not less thrive and grow and see revival take place if we're not united together. As Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I just want to show you another, another picture as a bit of an illustration of, of the power of unity. And um, yes, this is Lego Roman soldiers. Um, and so the Roman um, initially republic and then empire was successful in pretty well establishing its power over the entire world they knew of um, at that time. But they weren't successful because they had a few great warriors. The Roman armies were not successful based on the 
outstanding performance of a few people. They were successful because they faced the battle united as one, shields locked together. And their shields were not just covering their own body, but they were also covering the person next to them. So I'm going to get Carl and Abro completely unprepared to come up. and... And so... A Roman army wouldn't just rage into battle, woo, swinging. They would, they would face the opposition. I don't actually have shields for you, but they would lock together. Um, but instead of holding their shields just in front of them, thinking, I'm going to protect myself, I would hold my sword in my right hand and my shield would cover half my body. I didn't want to be on the end. Half my body and half of Carl's. And Carl would cover half his body and half of Abro's with his, and the line would go down the line and line, and they'd have rows and rows of this, and instead of one person getting excited and marching ahead, they were drilled and disciplined to march together, which we're not, we've not practiced, but marching together as one. Thank you, guys. And so, so the, Roman, the Roman army was successful not because there was individuals who were great amongst it, but because they were united together, they thought the same. They had the same thinking when it came to battle. They had the same passion and purpose, but they didn't just look to their own needs. They didn't just look to their own needs when carrying their shield. They looked to the needs of the person beside them and trusted the person on the other side. The key to defeating a Roman army was causing disunity in their ranks to somehow break up the line. And so just like a Roman army, the unity in the church is key to the success that we will see in our mission. The church won't be successful in reaching the world for the gospel because of a few individuals who are great evangelists as important as they are and will be. The church will be successful in its mission if we are united together, not just looking to our own needs, but looking to the needs of others. Unity is key to not just the success of the church, but to its very survival. This is why Paul is is so eager to encourage the church in Philippi to be united together. This is why Paul is so eager to encourage the church in Philippi to embrace the attitude of Jesus. This is why when we jump across to Philippians chapter 4, Paul pleads with Euodia and Syntyche to agree together in the Lord, lest it render the church not just unsuccessful, but render the church doomed to not survive. Unity in the church is key to not just our success, but our survival. And so what does it look like for us to, in this day, embrace the attitude of Jesus, to, to think together, to have, have a higher regard for, for someone else's interest than our own? In the rest of chapter 2, Paul gives us two examples. He, he speaks of Timothy and he, and he says, I have no one else like Timothy who uh, takes a genuine interest in your welfare. 
He says, everyone else looks to their own needs, but, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. And, and so Paul puts forward Timothy as an example of someone who in practice in his own day and age, unlike everyone else, didn't look to his own needs, but looked to the needs of, of Paul and serving him and, the, of, and looked to the needs of Jesus and the gospel. And now he's, he's sending Paul to the Philippian church because Timothy is a person who looked to the needs of the Philippian church. And, and Paul also talks of Epaphroditus who, who came from the Philippian church. He was sent off to, to minister to Paul in prison and, and take a gift to him. And, and this almost cost him his life. And so Paul is sending him back to Philippians. And, and at the end of Philippians, it, it says, in the end of that chapter, sorry, it says, welcome him, that's Epaphroditus in the Lord, and honor men like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give him. And so Timothy and Epaphroditus are, are very different people and, and they consider others' needs in very different ways. But, but Paul just provides us a few examples of people who just simply... Put Jesus first and put others first. And so for us today, it may look like one thing for me, it might look like another thing for you. It, 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 there's no clear cut cookie cutter template of what it looks like to, to embrace this attitude of Jesus, but, but to see unity in the church, it's following this example of Timothy and Epaphroditus of simply putting Jesus and the gospel first, keeping the main thing the main thing, not letting within yourself or your relationship with anyone else, let, letting anything else become more important in that relationship, letting anything else become more important in your own life than Jesus Christ and the gospel, putting Jesus first. And it also looks like putting others first. Of caring more for the welfare of others than for the welfare of ourselves. This doesn't mean becoming a doormat and you have no boundaries and, and that right after we finish here in two minutes' time that I can say to Abraham, well, since I've preached about putting others' needs first, this is what I need you to do for me. So Abraham would probably should encourage me to listen to my own sermon. <laughs> It simply looks like continuously and persistently taking the lower position, seeking to serve, not be served, considering the welfare of others first. The promise of Paul is, the promise of the gospel is that if we work out our salvation towards this unity with fear and trembling as a church, that we will shine like stars. Regardless of what happens in the culture around us, the world around us, regardless of what direction our government takes or, or what direction the community takes towards the gospel and the church, Paul and the scriptures affirm that if we are united together, then the church will shine like stars and the message of Jesus, the word of life, will shine like stars in this generation. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to invite our worship team to come and we're going to sing together in song about Jesus, this thing that is the main thing, this person that is and should always be the main thing in the life of the church, in our own life and in our relationships. So we're going to celebrate Jesus together. We're going to sing together.
in song, in like-mindedness about the one who is the very reason that we came this morning. But first, let me pray that as we work it out with fear and trembling that God would cause us to will and to act according to his desires. And so, Father, I do pray that by the power of your Spirit, you work in us to will and to desire unity, to keep Jesus as the main thing, to put others before ourselves. I, I pray that you would cause us to desire that, but not just desire that, to act towards that, just as Jesus, your Son, did not simply think about the needs of others, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He sacrificed himself for the sake of others. So, Father, I pray that you would cause us to will and to act for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of unity in the church. In the name of Jesus, we pray that you would establish and maintain and preserve unity in the life of the church. And I pray especially for Yas Community Baptist Church. I pray that we would be like-minded. I pray that we would be one in spirit. I pray that we'd be one in love, that we'd be one in passion, that we would be one in purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.